0: on today's episode of tap out talk we're gonna get into the broken skull sessions with stone cold steve austin all that and more and we're gonna go over a good one you're not gonna want to miss it let's get in welcome to episode one the undertaker a new series here on tap out talk we're going to go over stone cold steve austin broken skull sessions and we're going to recap and review it main key here is is i recap and review and then you based on that decide if you want to invest an hour and about a half to actually watch the actual show so i'll give you all the highlights um, and then you can decide, you know, if that's the best approach for you, or if this was enough information about what you need to get a, to know about this episode. So we're going to go ahead and start right in with the first guest that Stone Cold ever had on his podcast, which is the uh, the Undertaker, Part One. And so let's go ahead and go over the first talking point. So the podcast actually starts out with um, talking a little bit about the Undertaker in his uh really getting his start in the wrestling business and it was a little crazy just to kind of you know hear some of the stories because this is not really something i know a lot about about the undertaker because my first um experience really watching the undertaker as a kid was in you know the late 80s early 90s really when he uh, debuted in uh, survivor series of 1990 and that was um you know, actually this larger than life character. And I remember being a kid watching him and thinking, wow, this guy's really scary. And, you know, I just um, my friends and I talked about him all day at the next day at school. So um, this segment that Stone Cold kind of takes him through talks about a tag team he was in called the Skyscrapers. Um, And that was back in the NWA National Wrestling Alliance. So the way he got into this was an injury was suffered to uh, Sid Vicious, also known as Psycho Sid later in his career Um, he opened up it was the takers first real opportunity in the nwa and he was brought in as dan spivey's new partner when that injury occurred and the promotion was geared up to actually take on a program with the road warriors at clash of champions 10 and that's when things got real dan spivey who wasn't happy with the match build grabbed a chair and actually beat the crap out of Hawk and Animal. Backstage, the future dead man sat on the edge of a seat in the locker room, expecting his opponents to come throw hands with him. Um, and as he was kind of preparing for that, he was totally shocked when Hawk and Animal strolled in and shook Spivey's hand and thanked him for getting them some heat and said, and looked at Taker and said, well done for someone who was so green, too. And then when Dan uh, left, or when the Road Warriors left, Dan looked over and winked at uh, his young partner, the Undertaker. And that's when the Undertaker realized that, you know, Spivey was a respected tough guy in the industry, and not even hard-nosed brawlers like the Road Warriors were willing to mess with him. So this was an interesting little start to um, a great career. And it was interesting to think that he got his career start off of being brought in to fill a spot in a tag team for a guy that got injured. Uh, so actually, you know, it was Psycho Sid in that spot for many years, and they needed another big man just to plug and play. So it was interesting to hear The Undertaker being so green in the industry. Um, like I said, because I did not know him until he really got into his work with the WWF at the time, uh, which is going to actually go into our next segment. And that is meeting Vince McMahon. Have you ever wondered what it's like to meet Vince McMahon? Have you ever wondered what that initial interview is like when you actually get to know him as a talent. Well, in 1990, Taker, who wasn't quite called The Undertaker obviously yet, met with Vince McMahon, and at this point he was just Mark Calloway. And it was the first time he found himself in the receiving end of some tough questions in Vince's office. So McMahon asked his potential new hire um, if he had any hidden talents, and it turned out he did. And, um, Austin kind of pointed out here at this point in the podcast that he said that Vince likes to interview guys when he first comes into the company and find out what they do. And, um, what the law of the talent doesn't know is when Vince does this, you know, he's like, what do you like to do in your personal life? And then he likes to create a wrestling character off that because he feels like it's the real version of them. Um, and unfortunately, you know, some guys over the years have said, well, I'm a plumber and I, I, I used to work at a trash as a trash man for a trash company. And that's how you end up getting those kind of characters. So Austin um, kind of made it known and asked Taker what he was asked. And uh, Taker said, well, he had a special talent of uh, singing a little bit in the shower. And as soon as he said it, he regretted saying those words when he left his mouth because, you know, this is a first-time employer. And um, it was definitely, you know, a little bit of regret on Taker's end. And there's a funny moment during this interview where The Undertaker shoots that he, you know, he honestly was a little worried that he might become something like Shower Boy. And he knew he was in a different kind of world with the WWF. And he also knew that McMahon had a penchant for creating over-the-top cartoonish characters. And maybe um, he should have just kept his mouth shut. So um, in a good reason, in a good way, Vince actually did not see uh, his new wrestler as a wrestling version of st frank sinatra he didn't view the undertaker as that and so he had something else in mind and he first referred to taker as the undertaker when he actually called him up to offer him a full-time gig and it wasn't meant to be shower boy so uh he actually retells the story he says that vince actually calls him up and he goes he didn't recognize the number and taker said that he didn't recognize the number and he so he answered and right there is vince McMahon and Oh, uh, hi, am I talking to, am I talking to the Undertaker? Is this the Undertaker? And, uh, you know, Mark Calloway, the Undertaker, uh, at the time was like, had no idea how to answer that phone call because he'd just come right out the gate with it. And he asked if he was being talking to the Undertaker. And uh so he looked to make sure it wasn't a joke, you know, and he was like, um yeah, this is the Undertaker. And from there, Vince uh, liked that answer and he took that pitch and, gave it to the under uh, to Mark Calloway and the rest is history. And he debuted it. He wasn't quite sure what he had in mind at this point in the podcast, they were able to show some photos of some early sketches of what this character would, you know, look like. And it was more of an old Western uh, undertaker, you know, uh, that was basically waiting for the Cowboys to shoot it out. So um, that was a little bit um, of, about how he met Vince and, you know, at least he wasn't singing in the shower instead um It was a March into a Funeral March tune. So, Which leaves us to his debut. Now remember, Undertaker didn't know exactly how he was going to debut. And um, so there was a lot of fear around it. It was Survivor Series 1990. And The Undertaker, um, he also kind of mentioned during this, and he had a little bit of fear because in the debut at Survivor Series, he uh, knew they'd been hyping up this what's going to hatch from the egg bit. Um, And it was at Survivor Series, and there was this big egg, and something was going to hatch out of the egg at Survivor Series on the pay-per-view. And they haven't told the Undertaker the plans yet for that. And um, the Undertaker just said, oh, man, I hope I don't have to pop out of this egg. So, you know, it's kind of funny to hear Taker tell these stories and to realize that he was basically worried about being Shower Boy and now worried about being the Gobbling Gooker, which we learned uh, it was that later on. So during um, the Survivor Series, he actually, rest assured, when he debuted his match and the Undertaker hurled Dusty Rhodes over the top rope, working a few basic spots on him. Um, inside the Taker's heart, um, he said he was beating, his heart was beating through his chest, and because he got, he grew up idolizing Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, and so working with Dusty um, almost ended the gig before it really started, and um, Taker admitted he found it. Seriously difficult to smile when Rhodes was sailing over the ropes. And he'd come a long way from meeting in WCW with Ole Anderson, um, during which, you know, the Booker told him, um, we got to a point in this conversation where they, Ole Anderson uh, in WCW told The Undertaker he would never amount to anything in the business. and He would never, you know, amount to a dime. There was a real good moment between him and Austin here because if you remember, Austin was. Uh, told a similar thing by eric bischoff and you know they said there's no way i can market you with your black boots and your black trunks you're just kind of too boring so uh, you could tell both of these you know i'm going to say hall of fame legends even the takers not in the hall of fame yet but future hall of fame ledgers um they both you know shared that kind of moment where guys told them you know and how many times you know have people been told in their career, well, you're never going to end up being good at this. And they persevere through that and prove those, their doubters wrong. So always remember out there, if you have haters, they're just fans in denial, okay? Um, that combined with the taker, you know, um, and not hatching from the egg. And, you know, after the match with Dusty, the taker um, went into the locker room and made sure to thank him for, you know, being so giving to a new guy on the roster. And perhaps Rhodes could see that Ole could what Ole couldn't, but it was mind blowing to think that Anderson said something so harsh to one of wrestling's greatest wrestlers. So uh definitely, you know, a good story here. And, you know, I like the fact that he felt like he kind of arrived in his first match ever in the WWF by feeling that, you know, Dusty Rhodes kind of helping work with him and getting to work with such a legend it's so early in his career. So which kind of leads into him becoming The Undertaker. And to become The Undertaker, it was a challenge. He was actually first introduced by the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. And um, that was his first manager. Uh, Actually, he was hired in by DiBiase to be The Undertaker for the Survivor Series. And then he was passed off to Brother Love, who was his initial manager for the longest time. At that point, um, The Taker... emits in this conversation he said it took him almost a full year to acclimate to his new character he became accustomed to showing off his superior athletic ability in wcw and he loved hitting the ropes and he loved performing leapfrogs and being so flexible and the undertaker gimmick restricted him to being slow and methodical movements and it was a change that he had to focus and antagonizing with so for the long time he said it took him almost a year to get used to these slow stalking type movements you know and uh, being impervious to pain and that kind of thing so he had to learn not to sell moves and he had to learn to you know just be a lot slower in his approach taker had to fight his natural instincts so he watched others fly around the ring bumping their their asses off and he couldn't he knew he couldn't do that so the only Problem was that he also believed that his new persona would fizzle out is um, too much soon. So he pulled back a bit and put his ego aside and lengthened the taker's shelf life. It was a smart decision, and he'd come to thank himself for years. Instead of bumping around others, he cleverly showcased his athleticism by using in-character moves like the diving clothesline off the top rope or the big, jumping DDT that he mastered, right? So he started using some of those skill sets, but in a slower fashion. And I really believe um, when The Undertaker then went on um, and got Paul Bear as his manager, who was a indie manager and was very known in other territories, these two were a perfect match made in heaven or hell. And Paul Bear, I believe, really helped take The Undertaker to the next level and acted as a really good... A uh, complimentary mouthpiece that would help him with the interviews, and so that it wouldn't you know take away too much from you know him trying to work on getting better in the ring because he was so young, and um, it's interesting how the WrestleMania streak came about because you know he first took on Jimmy Snuka and beat a Hall of Famer, and then he kind of went on for years, and I don't think the plan was to have him, you know, have such a long streak, they just had to protect this Undertaker character from losing, and next thing you know, the streak just kind of happened. So, it was a good little segment talking about how he had to become the Undertaker from the gimmick, from the fear of overcoming the gimmick, Uh, you know, because let's be real, you gave this gimmick to anybody else with less talent than Mark Calloway, you know, it probably wouldn't work out as well. Um, You my guys might remember they tried to do a good version of The Undertaker many years ago with, um, I believe it was Kevin Thorne, and they called him Mordecai, and it just kind of fizzled out. Next, we get a little bit of a fun story in the interview, and um, The Undertaker tells Austin about a time uh, with the rap um, rock group Cypress Hill, and by his own admission, The Undertaker was a bit of a party animal back in the day. And that led to one of the most prestigious stories among his WWF peers in the '90s. So they were in the middle of a 17-day European tour overseas. The Undertaker told some friends he was going to take a night off from drinking, and he and hit the sack a little early. Well, first he noticed, uh, first he decided to pop into a hotel bar to say hello to everyone, and an innocent decision that would lead to one of the most memorable evenings of his life. Cypress Hill was in there hanging out with the roster, and one of them made the mistake of calling the Undertaker out um, when he went to leave, and he told Austin he decided to show them a thing or two, and he actually ended up putting one of the band members to bed in the wee hours of the following morning. So you know he was all ready to kind of relax, and they were basically kind of was like, "Oh, I thought you were kind of a party man," and so you know they kind of called out his man card a little bit, and um, at that point. You know, they went back and they partied all to the crazy hours in the morning. And Xbox was actually there too, sleeping on Taker's shoulder in the band's hotel suite. And The Undertaker was the last man standing and even managed to no sell how hungover he was for the next few hours later in the hotel lobby before boarding the bus. So um, we're just going to say this little match, he's undefeated in the uh, this matchup in the series. So Taker won, Cypress Hill zero. Up next, we talk a little bit about how The Undertaker possibly was supposed to go to WCW Nitro during the midst of the uh, Monday Night Wars with WWF. And there's been a lot of talk over the years why The Undertaker never left the WWF to rejoin WCW. At this time, you know, they were throwing so much money at talents and they got guys like Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and even Hawk Hogan to go over there and revitalize that brand. So some claim that he almost did before becoming his biker character in 2000. Uh, Kevin Nash kind of tells a story um, in a different uh, interview where he said that the whole biker gimmick was preparing him for ditching the Undertaker character to leave the WCW to see if he could still make something else work. Um, Eric Bischoff actually also stated this and and confirmed it on his podcast as well, and that he um, wouldn't have known what to do with Mark Halloway if the Taker gimmick you know, wasn't allowed to move with him, which it would have been copyrighted by WWF. So uh, the Broken Skull session here actually cleared everything up. Taker couldn't forget what Ole Anderson actually said to him in the late 80s, and that he never stopped thanking Vince for being the one guy that actually gave him a chance. Um, and so you know, that's, I think it's kind of important. Taker's a loyal guy. And even though there was probably big money being thrown at him, he said he told McMahon in the mid nineties that he'd go down with the ship if it came to that. And there was no way in hell that he was leaving for WCW, even when they were booting uh, the WWF's ass and the ratings. And this kind of loyalty is admirable, but Taker was also keen on, um, to stress where he was aware of how much money that he could have made back then, but still he ended up receiving, um, uh, pay slips for one-off matches that made for all the lean for the new generation on the back end so basically um, it was a risky move for him to kind of you know leave this dead man gimmick right but he did go on to become WWE champion and um, he then went on to do the American Badass gimmick which kind of did get him eased into the attitude era along with Stone Cold Steve Austin and a lot of other guys So, speaking of the American badass gimmick, um, we went from the dead man, and you could see the WWF like slowly, you know, showing the Undertaker on a motorcycle. You know, so you have the dead man on a motorcycle, and then they were easing us into the American badass gimmick. So, even though turning the Undertaker into a realistic biker idea was the Undertaker's idea, it was one that he actually kind of found terrifying. Um, And then this part of the podcast stone cold actually plays um some footage with a reinduction of the undertaker at judgment day 2000 when stone cold steve austin um basically said that he was mega nervous before entering the ring and he was opening up for the first time and giving fans a look into the real man behind the supernatural undertaker character so he was very nervous but he knew he had to um get along with the you know uh corporate he had to get go along with the corporate attitude era that they wanted to go with so um, that if it was poorly received also he knew that it would destroy almost a decade of hard work that he did and ruin him as a wrestler so becoming the american badass um, wasn't simply a case of chewing tobacco and cutting promos and wearing denim you know denim shirts it was metaphoric change that could easily have been shattered the years of dedication to the character that people adored Taker knew that. So he was going wasn't going to really, you know, in his words, fuck around with it, it being a half bake, you know, tweak. He wanted to meet the challenge head on and evolve the gimmick to extend his career because he knew his career would die in the attitude era. So and it worked. And it slowly but surely created anticipation and actually what made fans want the dead man character to come back, in which they were able to actually go back to the dead man character after being the American badass in the attitude era died down so this was um fascinating to hear you know the undertaker talk about this himself in this interview and i really enjoyed like hearing you know kind of clearing up the rumors about wcw and because i'm sure back then they were throwing lots of money at him but you know again um you know that was vince's prize guy and he was 100 percent loyal and i think this proves why he's such a locker room leader to a lot of the younger guys for years to come but and not only that but he was able to take a possibly impossible gimmick to get over and actually make it work and then adjust to the attitude era and become the american badass and then adjust back after that. So kudos to the undertaker and I mean this story I enjoyed and it really made us realize like why he is such a legend in this business and there probably will never be another guy like him. Up next they talked a little bit about retiring and what would be the undertaker's retirement match. <clears throat> We were then shown, and this was at WrestleMania 28, we were then shown a classic image of Taker and Shawn Michaels. Um, So this actually happened at the Taker-Shawn Michaels-Triple-H Hell in a Cell match, and the stage um, really wasn't pre-planned. And according to The Undertaker, you know, the way this match ended with this iconic, you know, at the top of the stage, them all kind of riding off in the sunset together, um, it happened organically. And there was a genuine tear running down his cheek because he really did believe that was a wrap of an epic career. The Undertaker recalls thinking that he retired following that year and that he had nothing left to prove after the four storming back-to-back matches with um, Michaels and Triple H. And later that night, he remembers the pain searing through his body and the adrenaline wore off. And that cemented the Taker's mind that he would have to embrace the reality of the situation to hang up the boots for good. Um, but Vince McMahon, it's always Vince McMahon and, uh, you know, he convinced the undertaker to have one more match, one more run. And of course that turned into another run and another run and yet another, and he's still operating in that mindset that every match could be his last. And, um, you know, at this point, you know, the undertaker as of this year in 2021 did say, Oh, well, I'm retired now officially. And, um, you know, you just gotta kind of wonder in the back of your head, will he get the itch? But I do think he'll end up staying retired at this point. We then go into a little bit of talk about the streak. So the streak started, like I said, when he began his WrestleMania streak against Jimmy Snuka. And um, over the years, he's fought every legend and um, has been undefeated against them, from Ric Flair to uh, Shawn Michaels to Triple H to uh, Batista. I mean, you name them all. And The Undertaker has beat them at WrestleMania. And this was at WrestleMania 30. And um, The Undertaker was taking on Brock Lesnar, who was a dominant beast in the industry already for years. And it was one of those, you know, he was coming off the feud. And then, you know, I remember seeing this match myself live. And I remember being shocked. And I actually thought they messed up. I thought the referee messed up the count, or I thought they didn't, you know, I was like, there's no way they could have just made The Undertaker lose his streak to Brock Lesnar. And, um, you know, you had to read that, you know, subheading again. But when it came down to it, The Undertaker was out flat cold at the hands of Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania 30. Crazy, um, kind of a sad note about this is The Undertaker doesn't remember Um, even having that match, and he was very out of it post-match WrestleMania 30. He got concussed a few minutes into the brawl with Brock Lesnar, something he refuses to blame Brock for to this day. Um, And he can't recall anything else about what happened. His last memory from that day is actually chatting with his wife, Michelle McCool, in the dressing room around 3.30 to 4 p.m. that afternoon. And things get hazy when he tries to think about prepping for the match, the bout itself, and what went down and uh, when he returned from the curtain. Uh, Taker's memory picks up again when he was laying in the hospital bed at 4 or 5 a.m. the next morning. The concussion crew, um, the concussion basically screwed up his confidence going forward, and he was uh, still unable to pick out exactly when he got concussed in the match. But he can see himself wobbling a little bit after a few minutes, and then when re-watching, And he thinks it might have happened when he took one of uh, Brock's many superplexes. And so it's a kind of a sad story to tell you how real this industry gets. And, you know, I like the term, you know, when people say wrestling's fake, I you know, I hate hearing that. I think we all hate hearing that as fans because it doesn't mean these guys aren't athletes. I like the term predetermined. Chris Jericho, I heard him say that years ago. And, yes, wrestling is predetermined. But, you know, these guys are athletes and injuries do happen. And so this is a, um, would have been a bad note for the Undertaker's career to end on. And I look at this, you know, and I remember being shocked. He was 21 and one after that. And, um, it just blew my mind. And I, I was in disbelief probably for the whole night of WrestleMania 30, um, despite, you know, having a great main event with Daniel Bryan, but I just was shocked about the Undertaker story. Um, there was only a couple people that knew the streak was going to end. That was uh, Taker, Lesnar, and Vince. The ref didn't know. The referee even goes on to tell that he was kind of shocked and he did the count, but he was a little bit scared that he was going to lose his job. So um, it's interesting to see like Taker not being able to remember this. And I know he didn't want to go out of the business like that. So that's why you know he had a couple more matches. So then we wrap up the session with Stone Cold and they share a couple drinks and a few more stories. And They wanted to end on a high note, not just talk about the streak. Um, so they actually shared a really fun clip and story of a time when Vince McMahon tried to get uh, the Undertaker to do a Booker T spinner Rooney in the middle of the ring. And they called it a take a Rooney. Right. And Undertaker was like, I'm not doing that. And then Vince even proceeds to come out to the ring and tries to force him to do it. And Vince does, they show a clip of Vince McMahon doing a spin rooney and it's horrible. He about looks like he's about to break his neck trying to do it. But um, him and Stone Cold have a good laugh over that. And then Stone Cold, you know, also wanted to apologize to him for a uh, um, almost tearing off his ear in a match at insurrection one year overseas at a pay-per-view uh, where he just kind of hit him on and sat on his head on the rope and, uh, Undertaker uh, said you never have to apologize for it and he goes especially after the paycheck you know that we got for that so these guys ended on a really good note with this podcast and this was a great podcast just to start out the Stone Cold Broken Skull Sessions and I feel like this was a really great way to just kind of break up the um, monotony of and tell behind the scenes a little bit of you know an interview we don't wouldn't typically get with The Undertaker so um, guys that's everything for today I want to say thank you for joining me in this. If you feel like you want to watch the Stone Cold sessions, they are all not going Remember, now it's not goodbye. It's see you later and game over.